You're listening to the Off the Ledge series of the Offscript podcast. I'm Jesse Hitchcock. And I'm Mark Coffin. This week, we're continuing our coverage, commentary, and criticisms of everything to do with the PEI election and referendum campaigns. But this week, we're going to be mostly talking about the referendum campaign. So before we talk about the referendum, though, let's talk about what happened this week. I was very surprised to see how many leaders debates there were happening on PEI this week. There was one Monday night, there was one Tuesday night, and there was one Wednesday night. And as someone who has never seen an election in anywhere I've lived with that many independently organized leaders debates, that's amazing. Yeah, it's pretty awesome. I think that's something that is unique to PEI. Like I've said, um, you know, we have really good access to politicians in PEI. So especially during a campaign period, there's a lot of opportunity to uh, attend debates and forums and mixers and everything in between to hear from all the candidates. I kind of feel like a bit, I'm not actually in PEI, but I kind of feel like a bit of like a foreign observer on elections watching this happen as closely as I am this time, because it's just, it's, I mean, there's nothing wrong with it. I guess it's good, but it's it's also foreign to me. Yeah, it's definitely interesting. I, I remember when I first moved there, the first election uh, that I that I observed when I was there was definitely um, different. I remember feeling as you feel, like, what's going on here, and why is it so different than everywhere else? But now I'm used to it, and I love it. Another interesting thing or fun thing that happened this week was that. Um, PEI, little old PEI, got some more national news attention, which I always like to see happen. So just today, actually, um, day of recording is Wednesday, um, PEI was featured on The Current. So Stu Neatby from The Guardian, which is a newspaper in PEI, he's the political um, reporter for that newspaper. He was on The Current with Anna Maria Tremonti talking about uh, PEI and what's interesting and what's happening on the ground. And David Coletto uh, from Abacus Data was also sharing some thoughts on the green sort of wave that we're seeing in the polls in PEI and how that might translate nationally. So that was kind of cool to hear PEI being chatted about on the national stage. Did they weigh an opinion on whether or not they think the polling numbers are going to translate into seats? Uh, they they just mostly talked about the numbers and shared some of that same kind of, you know, vote efficiency. Will the, will the you know, polling numbers turn into seats? Can they? How easy will that be? And some of the same things that we talked about in the first episode of PEI's history. Um, hmm. There was that interesting chart in the CBC uh, as well earlier this week that showed that kind of ping pong effect very well of liberal PC, liberal PC throughout history. Right, which yeah. looking at. Uh, for sure. Yeah, we'll have to share that when we post this. One thing I wanted to note was that uh, last week I mentioned that it was kind of unique that the Green Party had released their platform in the first week of the election campaign. And I didn't see it uh, when it happened. But also last week uh, on April 1st, the Liberals also released their platform um, in full, which is interesting to have the two front runners doing uh, kind of the same strategy. I guess it's also like a really short election campaign, so they don't have long to be out there promoting all of their ideas independently. So uh, I'm sure that has something to do with it. Yeah, and I would suspect that it's sort of, you know, when one of them chooses to go ahead with releasing theirs, then the other one can't be too far behind. Uh, I'm not sure if the PCs and the New Democrats are planning on releasing full platforms, but I know both parties have been 
releasing kind of snippets of ideas or policy points that they're looking to run on. So there's definitely a lot of information um, out there. It's sort of been going zero to 60. Yeah, things are happening fast. This week, what we'll be doing for the rest of the podcast is talking about the referendum campaign and everything around it. It it makes most sense to just kind of start at the beginning. So we'll talk a bit about kind of like what the question is, what the MMP system that people are going to have the opportunity to vote on actually is, some of the common questions around it, um, how it would work, uh, and then get into some of the more, I guess, political aspects of the referendum campaign, like the rules and what impact that might have on the inevitable outcome, whatever it may be. So the question is, should Prince Edward Island change its voting system to a mixed member proportional voting system? No or yes? So I'll just add a quick point about how we actually arrived at this question. So definitely we didn't pull MMP kind of out of thin air. Uh, There actually was a plebiscite held in November of 2016. And that plebiscite asked Islanders to rank five electoral systems based on their order of preference. Um, And the results of that plebiscite were that mixed member proportional uh, won after the fourth round of counting. And it won with uh, more than half of the vote, which is required. So 55% of the vote. Um, and so, you know, after that, the government decided not to go ahead with the results of that plebiscite just because turnout was low. Um, but they did say that on the next vote, which is the one we're talking about now, the question will only ask about MMP, which was the winner of that plebiscite. So we're not going back to ranking five systems again. We're just simply going to be uh, answering whether or not we want to essentially adopt the results of the plebiscite, which is changing to mixed member proportional. Right. And we thought we'd just share a brief explanation of what mixed member proportional is. And actually, it's kind of easier to describe mixed member proportional after we first sort of described how first past the post works. So first past the post, maybe it's an unnecessary refresher for people that know the system, um, but we'll start there for people who maybe aren't as familiar. Basically, it's a system right now in PEI. It's divided into 27 districts. Each district has one MLA. And to become the MLA, all you have to do is win more votes than anybody else uh, that's running in that district. The way MMP works, or mixed member proportional, is that instead of 27, there's 18 districts. So every district would get a little bit larger. And of those 18 districts, same thing. Anybody can run to be the MLA. They win the seat of MLA by earning more votes than anybody else. The difference being that there's a second ballot or a second section of the ballot uh, that you would vote on as a voter in an MMP system. And there's also a second set of candidates that would run province-wide for what are called list seats. So when you would go to vote, you would check for who you want to be your local MLA. And you would also uh, select a candidate from the list of the party you want to have the most power in the legislature. So if that party is the purple party, then there will be four or five candidates from that party. You select your favorite, that vote goes towards that candidate and raises their rank on the list, but also it contributes to the total vote for that party. So at the end of the day, if say 40% of people voted for the purple party, then the list seats would be used to ensure that roughly 40% of the seats uh, in total go towards the purple party. So they take the seats that were 
won by the Purple Party in the district elections, and then top that party up with as many seats as is necessary to bring them to 40% of the vote. And roughly the same for other parties that have gotten whatever share of the votes they've gotten. It doesn't work out to be like perfectly proportional because you'd have like half a seat here and there. So there's a bit of math that's involved in making sure that the seats are allocated fairly, but overall that's how it works. And you get a more proportional looking legislature than you would under just a first past the post system. I think it's important too to clarify that so the first part of the ballot is essentially just the same as right now, and it's that second part of the ballot that's then used to determine the percentage of the popular vote. So right. I think that there were some questions kind of around, you know, it, thinking that the first part of the ballot would be how we calculated which percentage voted for um, party X or party Y, but it's actually all determined from that that second part of the ballot, which is actually kind of cool when you think about it, because I think you know, I've been in the position definitely of really liking an individual candidate in my riding, but liking the idea of a different party. So you kind of have the power then as a voter to tease apart those those ideas, which I think is is kind of interesting and fun. I also ran some numbers just comparing the seat distribution in the 2015 election to how people actually voted in terms of what candidates they voted for. So in 2015, 41% of people voted for a liberal candidate, but 67% of people ended up with a liberal MLA. 37% of people voted for a progressive conservative candidate and 29% of people got a PC MLA. And about 11% of Islanders voted for the NDP, another 11% voted for the Green Party, but only 4% of Islanders were represented by a Green MLA, and nobody is represented by an NDP MLA or was represented by an NDP MLA in the last legislature because none of them got elected. Yeah, and that was the biggest percentage ever in PEI history um, where, you know, almost more than 20% of Islanders voted for those those two parties that you mentioned, the Green and NDP, yet only collectively mm. those parties earned one seat in the legislature. So first past the post has definitely produced some very interesting outcomes um, all across Canada and nationally, but uh, especially on PEI. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the New Brunswick election uh, last time around was particularly uh, interesting for first past the post, but we're talking about PEI. It is probably worth mentioning that this isn't the first time PEI has asked this question. Um, uh, it's yeah, the third. So it's the third time that PEI has asked this question. So this is something that has been on the radar uh, in PEI for quite some time. So there was an initial plebiscite back in 2005 um, asking about electoral reform that did not pass. Uh, and then again, as I just mentioned in uh, 2016, and now here we are again. So this is definitely something that's of interest. And I think, you know, it's fair to say that this is the last time that Islanders are going to be asked this question for, for some time at least, or maybe ever. So it's definitely uh, an interesting story to follow. For sure. Um, so why don't we get into the rules as a segue into the rules? I think most people, you know, would hear the description we just provided, um, think about the question and look to election day to think like, okay, well, let's see how it turns out. If the majority votes yes, then clearly it's something that uh, Islanders want. And if, you know, the, the question loses, then, well, I guess uh, people uh didn't really want that. And I think it's important to think about how the rules actually affect those outcomes. Because one of the things that I think is consistent when you look at all of the referendum campaigns or all of the plebiscites on electoral reform that have happened uh, across Canada is that the process is always a little bit 
are, are a lot imperfect. Like the there was polling from the BC referendum that just happened post referendum where it basically concluded that British Columbians wanted a proportional system, but were very uncomfortable uh, voting for one given the process and given the amount of unknowns. And I think as we segue into the discussion on like the rules around the referendum campaign, I think some of that will become a bit clearer. I think that that that's a really important point. I mean, referendums are great tools. Um, but we do have to think about the questions that we're asking. And I know that in the last plebiscite and PEI, what was asked was something incredibly complicated. It was rank five electoral systems. Um, mm-hmm. And you have to think about, it was also a standalone plebiscite, so not attached to a general election. So you're asking people to go on their own time, not in an election cycle, to answer this question that asks them to rank five incredibly weird electoral math systems like it's a it's a pretty big ask and similarly in bc i mean that was a mail-in ballot there's all these things that can affect the outcomes of plebiscites and referenda so um yeah you're definitely right that there's there's things to kind of delve into and and i think that the intention of holding this pei referendum in conjunction with the provincial election was to alleviate at least a bit of that kind of process concern yeah so let's talk about the rules. One thing that I think is worth noting, um, because I think it reveals some of what the government's intentions might have been, is that originally the rules were like, I don't think the rules are great, but uh, initially they were pretty bad. Like there's, as we'll see, a lot of constraints around um, what the yes and no sides can do in terms of advertising and the limits around that. But um, originally, if you read the rules and listened to the um, attorney general's comments on them, things like newspaper editorials or columns or op-eds in support of either side, um, even interviews would have been considered to be referendum advertising um, unless they were able to prove that they were created like pro bono and without any funding behind them. So I think... um, just in uh, you know trying to connect the dots between the government's decision to n- not move ahead with the plebiscite results when the majority of people who voted in the plebiscite chose the MMP system it, it, it seems kind of suspect that they went you know quite far with their initial introduction of legislation that would impose rules on this referendum it looks like a, a pretty broad reach that would infringe on freedom of speech and like definitely freedom of the press. So I think it's just worth mentioning that like that's where this all began. And then they, you know, with amendments and pushback from the opposition and civil society groups, like they they, they pulled it back and made it a, a bit more palatable. But I just think it's worth mentioning that these rules would have been much worse had there not been that pushback. Yeah, and I, I remember feeling surprised that they would even try to impose rules like that, given the level of outrage in the province about the plebiscite results and the decision to not move forward with them. I mean, people were obviously engaged on this issue, so I was I was surprised that that was kind of what what came out of the gate, but definitely an improvement <laughs> from the original yeah. version. Because. Under those rules, potentially this podcast could have been construed as referendum advertising. Um, Absolutely. Th- yeah. Thankfully, it's not. Um, well, hopefully, hopefully, it's not. Yeah, and hopefully yeah. it won't be. <laughs> We're not getting paid for this. So I think, I guess the main thing is that uh, under the referendum rules, there's two groups uh 
a yes side and a no side, each of them had to apply to the referendum commissioner to be designated as the official yes and no group. Um, so the no side is called know what to vote, N-O what to vote. Um, but you may not necessarily know that if you looked at their advertising because their big slogan is, if you don't know, K-N-O-W, vote no. Um, <laughs> so they are really big on the, the play on words. And then the yes side is vote yes, P-E-I. There's no play on words there. So it's just as it sounds. So if you want to advertise outside of that um, and you're not one of those groups, uh, individuals can spend up to $1,000 and groups of individuals can join forces and spend up to $10,000 collectively. So there's room for other nonprofits or associations to spend some money supporting one side or the other of the referendum campaign and presumably fundraise for that. But the two official groups cannot fundraise and are simply able to spend $75,000. And I, yeah, I think it is worth kind of maybe going over what has been done so far on yeah. both sides. Um, definitely the no what to vote group has, um, they were out early and they've done a lot of advertising. So they have a lot of billboards. Um, the billboards are what have probably gotten them the most media attention, but I think they've also sent out um, mailers or mail outs in, in the, in the mail. Um, but they got a lot of flack early on because the messaging was uh, a little bit ominous. I think initially in the first mail out, it was, um, the language said that MMP was dangerous and confusing. Um, and they use the word dangerous. And I know that their billboards say something to a similar effect. And then like you mentioned that, you know, it's confusing. If you don't know, then just vote no. Um, mm -hmm. and that I think, uh, is an interesting tactic, um, that's been pretty controversial. Uh, the yes side in contrast, I think has, um, been a little bit more slow to gear up, but I know similarly, a lot of, um, digital advertising and social media campaigns, but their message is a lot more, um, kind of technical. So, Mm -hmm. uh, it's focusing on, you know, this is what MMP will give to us as a province and here's how we'll balance the results of the elections and here's what elections would look like under MMP and all of this type of messaging. Uh, we didn't really touch on this in the first podcast, but um, this election was called at sort of the whim of the government. It was uh, the premier's decision when we would go to the polls and that creates some systemic unfairness for opposition parties, but also like anybody who wants to be a candidate that doesn't have just the freedom to, you know, drop the job that they do from nine to five every day and then start campaigning. Um, but also for referendum uh, campaigns, I mean, at least politicians, uh, at least incumbents anyways, are, are, you know, employed as public servants uh, throughout their, you know, period preceding the election. But if you're running a referendum campaign with a budget of $75,000, most of which would probably get eaten up pretty quickly, I imagine, um, on advertising. I, I can't imagine how it would be easy to just, you know, when, you know, the premier decides to call the election, um, drop everything and, you know, execute your campaign. And just by looking at things, it looks like the no campaign did seem to have um, things ready to go a lot quicker. Um, and then the yes campaign, understandably, I think has been, you know, pulling it together. 
Yeah, absolutely. And I think something that's been emerging when you get past sort of the main messaging, um, I know that the no side is very concerned about rural representation. So this is sort of what is becoming central to this. I know one of the other yes groups, not the official one, but one of those smaller groups, they have put out some campaign messaging now about how MMP can benefit rural communities um, sort of to contrast this main messaging that, you know, rural PEI will be dis, you know, uh, disadvantaged by proportional system and all of, all of this kind of um, conversation that's been happening. So to me, that's definitely what's mm-hmm. been emerging as like the central kind of message and probably rightfully so, because in the plebiscite um, in Charlottetown, for example, um, you know, together MMP and DMP, the two proportional right. systems had m- most of the vote way more than first past the post. Mm-hmm. Um, all of the Charlottetown districts, you know, MMP came out first early on. Um, so I think, you know, Charlottetown were pretty clear on, on how they feel. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the rural messaging I think is what's becoming really central to this referendum campaign. Yeah. So I guess the last piece of the rules is what will make the results of this referendum binding? Um, So looking at the Electoral Systems Referendum Act, um, it says that the result of the referendum is binding on the government only if A, more than 50% of the validly cast referendum ballots vote the same way on the question, and B, in at least 60% of electoral districts, more than 50% of the validly cast referendum ballots vote the same way on the question. So I did some like quick back of the napkin math um, and just to see like how many people, well, I always try and like, instead of figuring out like how many people need to vote a particular way in order for this side to win, I do the opposite because that for me, it ended up being easier, but like how many people could vote in favor of MMP and still not have MMP for the island. And just by running the numbers, there's a scenario where like upwards of 70% of islanders vote in favor of MMP, but because they don't meet the second criteria where at least 60% of electoral districts have more than 50% of the vote in favor of MMP, then the results still wouldn't be binding, which I think is just a, I mean, I don't know if there's ever anything empirically better than just a straight majority. Arguably, unless either side meets that threshold, then the result is just non-binding and unclear. So uh, you could argue that a government could come in and say, let's introduce our system or let's keep this system because the results were not clear in either direction. Yeah, I, I think that, I mean, there are definitely scenarios that could be weird, uh, of course, just like any election. But I do think that the intention of this of this rule is a good one. Um, I think, I think so. I mean, just, just to sort of like simplify it. So the rules are that obviously 50% or 50% plus one, um, have to vote yes overall. Um, but that, that also has to be true in 17 out of the 27 districts or 60% or whatever that works. That's the way easier way to say it. Um, But I think that the reason that that's in there is so that we can avoid a situation where Charlottetown is, you know, say everybody in Charlottetown votes for MMP, then in theory, you know, that could up our percentage province wide. But, you know, is that really a fair representation of 
what the province wants to do. So I think that that's why that rule is in there. Undoubtedly, it will make it more challenging for the referendum to pass, of course. Um, but I think that the intent is is a good one because we do want this to be something that everybody feels like they're a part of. I guess so. But I always come back to like, we weren't all consulted when the first pass of the post system was developed or Islanders weren't all consulted. Nova Scotians weren't consulted in my case. Um, like they're like the threshold for change is significantly greater than any kind of threshold or any kind of consensus building exercise that was used to begin what we're all doing, which is kind of yeah, a, I mean, it's a bit yeah, of a false <laughs> thought experiment because like, you know, we're going back to a time where like it was men, male property owning, um, non-Catholics that were voting. Anyways, I just want to register my dissatisfaction with part B of that. And like you said, like this is meant to limit how quickly a switch to MMP could move. Like, you know, if, if neither side gets this threshold, neither the yes nor the vote, no votes get at least 60% of electoral districts on board, it's not going to mean that we no longer have first past the post. It's like, it's clearly meant to limit MMP's adoption. I think this is the challenging thing with referenda is that, uh, you know, you're always asking for this high threshold to change something, but, you know, at some point, you know, the, the argument on the other side is that, you know, at some point legislators can just legislate. And when is it the right thing to ask these questions and to have these rules and these these thresholds and limits? And when is it the right thing to just make a decision that government feels would be in the best interest of the people? And that's a whole other, obviously, conversation. But right, we are yeah. in this, this position of, you know, having a referendum. And I I definitely think this makes it more challenging, but I also think it's important that, you know, especially rural voices feel like they're not being excluded from the conversation. Mm -hmm. One thing we haven't talked about yet, um, but I know is a big part of the the campaign on the no side, N-O, <laughs> is the, this idea that people are concerned about how candidates are going to end up on each party's list and generally it's presumed that the you know there's some back or at least the no sides of these campaigns tend to presume that there's sort of this back room of party insiders that decides who ends up on the list and that reduces the democratic connection between voters and their candidates um, and their elected officials, uh, I guess, by extension. I always struggle with this one because I, I don't understand, well, like, A, the parties have always decided who the candidates are, and they do that through their own mechanisms. So even first past the post, the parties decide what candidates are there, and that's done through the membership. But B, there's also always been a list. In first past the post, there's just one candidate on the list. And in MMP or in any of the systems where you have a list, you and especially when it's an open list, like the one uh, PEI is considering, you not only have the option of becoming part of the party and influencing who ends up on the list, but you have the option as a voter to choose which candidate from the list. So I mean, just seeing that criticism of MMP, and it seems to be one of the more popular ones and, and one that I think is relevant to the real um, voter or is, is the, the, you know, the concern is that you know, everybody is going to be from Charlottetown or, you know, in the BC referendum campaign that just happened, it was, everybody's going to be from, you know, Vancouver or Victoria. And it's, you're not going to get 
people representing the whole province. And presumably, if you were running a party or if you were trying to, you know, exert whatever influence you have over who becomes a candidate, you would want to make that list as diverse as possible. So you can point to it and say, like, look, you know, look how diverse our candidates are. They're from all over the island. You know, they're from different parts. They're visibly diverse. They're diverse in terms of life experience. They're diverse in terms of age and you know, gender and all the other things that we look for in diversity. Yeah, absolutely. Like, you know, parties, if they're being smart, which they generally are, are going to populate lists that are likely to please the electorate (laughs) because they want the electorate to vote for someone from their list and subsequently give them standing in the popular vote. So, um, you know, you're definitely right to say, and I'm frustrated by this argument as well, but, um, you know, the parties already (laughs) control who's nominated. Um, in some cases, even like party leaders have final sign off on who's nominated. So, Mm -hmm. and, and, you know, I'm not saying that that's right or democratic, but it is what happens in the current system. So it, it shouldn't be used as an argument against mixed number proportional. It's a fair critique of, you know, the current system for sure. But it's definitely not a... It's a not a unique critique. Yeah, exactly. So we've talked a bit about like the politics of the yes side and the no side. What is it when you think of, I guess, you know Islanders better than myself? What is it that you think they'll be weighing when they are thinking, you know, the kind of average sometimes news reading person that hasn't followed this debate closely over the last three or four years, what is it you think that they're going to be weighing when they go to make a decision on this question? I think that the, the biggest thing that's kind of pushing this conversation right now and over the last few years in PEI uh, is A, what happened in, in 2016 with the plebiscite. Um, so that, that kind of put the issue on the stage, but even before that, I think that what's really resonating with people on PEI right now is the fact that this is, you know, the least binary that the electoral, um, results have been in PEI's history. So right now there's a lot of people on PEI who are voting for parties that, are not reflected in the legislature. So that Mm. makes it more stark. That makes it more stark. Um, You know, when it's like 10% of people, 8% of people voting for these other parties, um, you know, yeah, it's easy for it to fly under the radar. But for the last four years, we're in a situation where a quarter, almost a quarter of Islanders voted for parties that have one collective seat or now two in a by-election. But I think that that's sort of what you know, has brought it to everybody's attention. And then I think there are a lot of people who just want a system that's more collaborative and they've learned from other democracies that use MMP that, you know, the, the research suggests that those governments are more stable and they promote diversity and elect more women. And these are things that I think, um, as PEI becomes more and more diverse, gets more newcomers, women are participating, you know, more than ever. And I think that we want more of that. And I think that that's something that has definitely brought it to to the forefront in people's minds. And I think it's just a trajectory. Like since 2016, this has just been the issue is not going away. The issue is not going away. It's sticky. So that sounds optimistic about uh, the result. I guess uh, I keep thinking also about um, 
British Columbia and the British Columbia election results or referendum results um, from this past fall. And looking at the no campaign here, like they're, it, it really looks like they've they're just doing, I guess, the low budget equivalent of the no campaign from BC. The the thing that really, I guess, like struck me or, or that stands out in memory from that campaign, and I guess for people who didn't follow that necessarily, uh, the no side won. Um, so they're sticking with first past the post. But there is, you know, a lot of, I think what you could essentially call uh, like misinformation or disinformation campaigns from the no side that were essentially trying to make people feel like um, any of the proportional systems. And in their case, they had um, a few different proportional systems on the ballot, one of which was MMP, um, but all of which were criticized by the no campaign for um, removing rural representation. And there was this video of this, uh, I think it was a television commercial of this, you know, old woman sitting in her like nicely decorated Victorian living room, picking up her phone and trying to call her MLA and getting like the, this number is out of service response. Press one for your local MLA. I'm sorry, you no longer have a local MLA due to proportional representation in BC. We permanently closed this office and your local MLA was replaced by a pool of candidates chosen in a political party backroom in Vancouver. These people are not available at this time. Have a nice day. Which was, you know, essentially going as far to suggest is like, not only will you have no representation, but like you won't even have a local MLA, like they'll be gone and you won't even be able to call them on the phone. And I think, you know, looking at the, the no side here, like it's, uh, I can see a, like why they're doing it and B exactly why it would be like effective people generally rather than make a decision for something new, whether in their personal lives or, or politically tend to, when confused, decide to not make a change because it's unclear what that change would mean. And the more people that or the more, um, I guess, points of contact you have that are you know, showing you that this is unclear, this is confusing. And like, in some cases, we on the pro PR side don't necessarily always help and make it less confusing. I guess I'm slightly pessimistic that, or optimistic that their campaign is going to work and pessimistic for the broader cause of bringing electoral reform to parts of Canada, because we know disinformation works. Yeah, I think your point is a good one. And it, it is sad. I think, you know, there's been definitely a few people that have um, spoken to me since those mail outs started happening. And um, they were talking about, you know, elderly members of their family who uh, had made the decision to vote for MMP in the referendum and then mm. got these things in the mail that are essentially using like, you know, the paper is black and in like big red letters it says dangerous. <laughs> and like, you know, it's like a, an alarming thing to receive in the mail. And, uh, I know several people contacted me and said, you know, Oh, my, my grandparents called me and said that they decided they were going to vote no because they were worried since they got this thing in the mail. Mm. And, um, that that makes me sad for democracy yeah um but similarly pessimistic about the referendum i i do you know I, i'm definitely not uh i'm almost never an optimist and certainly not in this case but i do think that there is some good information going around there too i know the yes side 
has started this campaign that sort of take a chance on change and, you know, rural Islanders for MMP and all these things. Mm. So, I mean, it's fast and this is why maybe we need fixed election dates, but right. you know, there is the benefit that it's been on the radar for a while and hopefully, you know, people can uh, help kind of provide information on both sides. Like I, I'm definitely not saying vote yes, no matter what I'm saying, I hope that people have the opportunity to learn about both sides and make an informed decision without being afraid. <laughs> yeah. Not to harp on, the pessimistic side, but just when you mentioned your, uh, the story of your friend, um, the, so in the BC referendum, my wife is from BC and her parents called, um, shortly before they were to cast their ballots. And because this is part of my work and I know a lot about it, they asked me to explain the different systems to them. And I remember we had the conversation and, you know, it was just, even with that dialogue and they're you know generally pretty smart well-educated people um both you know have uh, a habit of paying attention to what's going on in politics and probably pay more attention than the average person um and still just with like all of the i guess the question marks that were thrown at them by the no campaign and in that case it was like it was very well funded um they had a lot of um different industry associations for whatever reason behind them um they they the no campaign um and yeah they're at the end it wasn't no never it was not too confusing like not not the you know the the process is is unclear what's going to happen yada yada and i think there are still a a few unanswered questions with um you know this system in terms of like what the map is going to look like but not i guess to the degree that i think the no side is exaggerating it to to be. Yeah, absolutely. I think um, there's a lot that can still be finalized in the legislation after the vote if it were to pass. Uh, and I see that as more of an opportunity than a than a criticism, right? It's like we can we can still like the basic framework is there and we know like how many district seats, how many list seats, um, those types of things. But you know, we can still make this something that that works for us. Hmm. So one last outcome other than no or yes that's maybe worth uh, exploring a little bit is that when you look at the language of what makes the referendum binding, um, it does mention that um, 50% of the validly cast referendum ballots. So that means that the total number of ballots is going to be determined based on who actually votes in the referendum portion of the ballot, not necessarily who votes in the whole general election. So there is an option where people may just choose to abstain from voting in the referendum entirely and not check yes or no. Yeah. And I think that's, uh, I mean, when I was thinking about this uh, and the fact that like, if you don't vote um, in the referendum, you're, your ballot does not count to the yes or the no proportions. And those who do vote, get to decide. Um, that's kind of, uh, you know, if you're ever on a board or in the house of assembly as an MLA and you don't feel like you have enough information on something, the proper procedure is to not vote. So just planting that seed for those of you who are like maybe listening. I mean, I'm sure the people who are listening to this probably are deep into it enough to know where you want to vote, but, um, perhaps tell your friends that like, 
it's an option not to vote and you don't have to push the results in either direction. So if you don't know, don't vote. <laughs> okay. Well, that is another episode of the Off the Ledge series of the Offscript podcast. Uh, thank you for listening. Um, if you are the referendum commissioner, I hope you will not consider this to be referendum advertising. And if you do, I will let you know that we spent less than $1,000 producing this and all of the episodes we'll produce in this series. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast so that you don't miss next week's episode where we're going to have at least one special guest to carry on the conversation about the PEI election. In the meantime, if there is anything you want to tell us about uh, what you heard or perhaps wish you heard on the podcast, you can email us at offscript at springtide.ngo, tweet us at springtideco, at springtideco on Twitter. You can find me on Twitter at Mark Coffin. And you can find me at Jesse Hitchcock. If you don't do podcasts, but you want to keep listening, you're probably already listening on the website springtide.ngo. But if you're not, you can also go there and listen to this and every other podcast, as well as all of our other past podcasts that we've done at Springtide. See you next week. <laughs>